Technology Planning and Investment with Paul Doherty, Accenture's Group Chief Executive of Technology and their Chief Technology Officer. Our Accenture technology business that I'm responsible for was 25 billion of the 40, you know, 45 billion or so of Accenture's revenue. So it's a big part of our Accenture business. And in my role, I'm looking at the strategy and kind of what we do with the business as well as, you know, kind of, you know, being responsible for all the capability and innovation and how we drive the business for our clients every day. And, uh, you know, I think when you, when I think about that in the context, like how I think about our business and then how we help our clients think about what's happening with technology, not how, how to plan for it, there's, there's two truths that I keep talking about that I think help me make every decision. I, I would say there are two truths that I think, you know, we need to incorporate in, in decision-making as you think about technology. The first one is that exponential uh, you know, the exponential pace of technology advancement is accelerating. We've been talking about that for years. COVID didn't slow it down, <laughs> despite all the impacts of COVID. And that's still a reality for clients, and it's, uh, it has massive implications. The second truth is that every business is, is a technology business. And I think this is a realization that many companies are, are coming to. I'll talk about this a little bit more later, depending on where we go in the conversation. But you know, back in 2013, we came out with a provocative statement that said, every business is a digital business. And a, a lot of people challenged us at the time and we had to defend it. And people said, no, that's not true. But you know, we're not, our industry is not digital. But it became widely accepted that every business and every industry you know, was going digital. But I think you know, we might have gotten a little, a little bit wrong or just missed a point, which is to be digital, you need to master technology and be as good at technology as a digital native. And that's the journey that every company is on right now. So when you think about technology planning and what you're doing, I think you have to throw away some of the old mindsets. You know, there used to be this thing we had in technology. Everybody's seen the chart. We have technology and business and narrow drawn from one to the other and back. And you say technology drives the business and the business, you know, technology enables the business and the business drives technology. You just got to throw that aside because technology is the business. Technology is the foundation of the products and services of the digital world. And uh, I think that that's what you need to integrate in, in, into your technology strategy and uh, the planning. So simply put, that's the, the way we think about it. So Paul, how is that different from traditional technology procurement? I think you need to think about technology in a few different categories. So you need to think about you know, what, what we've typically thought about in IT, which is how do you support the business? which is you know, the typical things you do to support the business. We need to equip people with technology and provide the technology workplace, the PCs, the, the basic access to systems and such, but that's just the basics. Then the question is, how do you use technology to improve the business? How do you run your supply chain more effectively? How do you, uh, how do you transform your, your, your uh, channel engagement with your consumers and your CRM systems and processes and the like? That's improving the business. But the, the other obligation, I think, of, of any technology executive is, is an active role in growing the business and uh, looking at ways you can, you can drive growth. I mean, think about companies like, um, I don't know, like, uh, like uh, Marriott, who launched their home suites platform, a new business that's around, that's you know, to compete with you know, companies like Airbnb in the experience category around, um, around homes. It's a technology-enabled business, along with other aspects of a digital business model. Or think of, of uh, Unilever with Blue Air and connected uh, air purifiers and how that that creates a different experience and different connection with our consumers. So increasingly technology in, in across every industry is about you know, growing the business as well. What are the implications of this for chief technology officers? You need to stretch the eye. You know, we think of CIO 
chief information officers, what, what typically means. But uh, you know, the CIO needs to be about innovation. So the I can be for innovation. The the I can you know needs to be about inspiration as well. I think the CIO has to play a role around the inspiration and the evangelism of technology and the education of the rest of the organization, the education of technology, certainly, uh, but the education of the rest of the organization. Uh, we've got a program in Accenture we call TQ, which stands for Technology Quotient. It's for all of our people. It's not just for the technologists. All of our 500,000 people take you know, TQ and have TQ goals to learn about different topics that are important. And I, I think that's the kind of role the CIO needs to play so that, it's again, it's not just uh, supporting the business and improving the business, it's growing the business and inspiring and leading the organization to the, to the appropriate uh, use of technology. So I think that's a, I think that's a, a key change, um, you know, key change in the role. I think it's been changing. So some are, some are, you know, are certainly approaching it that way. And there's, there's so many great, you know, CIOs, CTOs, CDOs out there, but I think that becomes a, an obligation for, you know, for everybody that's in this type of a role. So in a way you're talking about the natural conclusion, the natural extension of how this role, how the CIO role has been evolving for some number of years now. So it's not a new thing, but it's now being more fully realized. Would that be an accurate way to put it? I think for a lot of years, if you think about a rock concert analogy, I like going to rock concerts, can't do it right now, but in normal times. Um, and uh, if you think about a concert analogy, I think IT has been kind of the roadies you know, they've been uh, following the band, following the band around, setting up the stage, making sure everything worked, and supporting the stars that are going to go out there on the stage. I, I, I truly believe that uh, were, the pivot we're in is the CIO and really, really technology being the stars of the stage. And it's not about the role specifically, but technology is the star of the stage, and what's going to differentiate companies going forward. And we can get more, get more into that. We have a lot of evidence around this. So when you move from being the roadie to the star, the star of the stage, you take out other obligations around you know, how, to, how to put on that performance and uh, lead the business in the right direction. Paul, this uh, CIO role, what does it take for a CIO to fill those shoes that you're describing? The technology capability of a, of a CIO is, is really important. Uh, we, we have our new vision, technology vision out and one of the technology trends that we talk about is we call it stack strategically. And what we mean by that is the technology stack is strategic to what the company's doing and the way that the company operates. It used to be that, hey, however you got it done was fine as long as you generated the business outcome to a certain extent. Not, not for everybody, but that was the way that a lot of cases IT was thought about. Now, how you build it matters. And that's why we're having discussions with CIOs, but also with CIOs and their CEOs and their and their uh, C-suites and their boards about technology, because it matters. How they compete matters about who they partner with, how they develop the technology, what streaming service do, the, do they use, what kind of cloud data services they use could impact how they can compete in their industry. So the technology really matters. Obviously, you need to know the business. That hasn't changed. That's always been a key trait of the CIO. I think the you need to be a, a learner and a teacher. So this education aspect becomes important because the technology continues to evolve. And I think the role of the the CIO or the senior technology leader in any organization needs to be to teach others, you know, to learn fast and you know, be able to learn fast and to teach others. And then the other element of it is being a change agent. The title of the vision that I just mentioned, the title of our Accenture technology vision this year is, uh, is called Leaders Wanted, Masters of Change at a Moment of Truth. And it's a moment, I can talk about why we believe it's a moment of truth if you're interested. I think it is a, a really important moment 
for all of us that are in leadership positions in technology. And masters of change is, is, is really a key skill that leaders need because it's not about uh, it's not about creating a static technology platform. It's about building a platform for change of technology and to allow the business to change more rapidly. That's harder to do and different than you know, some of the ways we've approached things in the past. And we have a comment on exactly this point from Twitter. Kwaja Sheikh makes the point that it's all about the people, aligning people towards a common purpose, developing the skills and the talent, which seems very much in accord with what you were just describing. Talent is really pivotal and, and critical. And, uh, you know, we're, it, and I think it's the right kind of talent too. I think, uh, and if you think about this moment of truth in building the future, you need the right talent, um, but, and you need uh, an inclusive and diverse set of talent, which is something we talk about in our vision. We've been talking about for, for a while, and it's something I've been involved with at Accenture and across the industry on is, is looking at how we build inclusive, inclusive and diverse you know, opportunities around technology. The reason that's important is we're rewriting the future with technology. It's not just about pl- applying technology and doing things to automate business and such. We're, we're enabling the experiences of the future across every business and across every sector of the economy. And we're only going to get that right if we have the right talent you know, to the question uh, and the right workforce uh, involved in doing that. And that's, that's why we're so committed to you know, things like our 50-50 uh, gender uh, diversity pledge uh, that you know, we've been the, one of the first, uh, if not the first to come out in our industry with specific uh, targets for underrepresented minorities in terms of uh, hiring and advancement in addition to women. And we, we think this isn't just, it's not just good, you know, good for people, uh, which it is. It's not just good for communities, which it is to make sure we're creating opportunity for all. It's just the right way, you know, that we, uh, that we need to operate to create the right future for all of us. Well, certainly in the many years that I've known you, this theme of diversity and creating diverse teams and creating opportunity has been a constant uh, for you. Uh, Paul, a lot of what you're talking about is digital leadership. And so what are the characteristics of a digital leader today? I think the, the roles of a digital leader and technology leader are converging. A lot of organizations are converging their digital and technology organizations for the reasons that I said earlier that um, you know digital leadership requires technology. And it's not just technology. There's there's business model, there's the business and all sorts of things you need to drive the experience, et cetera, with digital. But, it, but a lot of that's converging um, as we go. I'm not saying it will in every organization, but that's, you know, that's a trend we see. Uh, but the, the other point that's important to realize is we're, most organizations are not very far along on their journey to be digital. Uh, and it's, it's, this is getting embraced throughout the business. We we took an interesting step. I don't. Some some may be aware of this. We had an organization called Accenture Digital, um, and uh, we had that for for a number of years. We created it back when we said every business is a digital business. We created Accenture Digital to build uh, to build that um, to build our digital business. Uh, about a year ago, we actually said, you know, Ex- we, Accenture Digital uh, isn't needed anymore. Not because digital is not important, because digital is more important than ever, and we're just getting started. But it be, it's because it became embedded in every part of our organization. So having a separate organization wasn't uh, the right approach anymore. And I think that's an important, you know, thing to think about for a lot of organizations. We did a survey that we um, and a whole research study studied. Uh, I think it was six thousand organizations around the world. Uh, talked to many uh, people, many executives at these organizations. And we, and there was, we released this research just before COVID. 
last January, you know, 15 months ago in Davos. And the research highlighted a digital achievement gap. And what the research showed is that the top 10% of digital leaders were outperforming the rest by 2x. So top 10% outperforming by 2x. And uh, largely, it was because of talent, was, uh, which we just talked about, uh, the mastery of technology, governance around in, in a digital around the organization, and their ability to drive change. Those were the characteristics of the digital leaders. So you might then ask, so what happened with COVID? We're about a year after COVID. What happened? Well, we just recut the research and redid it. And what it showed is the gap widened. The top 10% of digital leaders widened the gap from a 2x performance gap to a 5x performance gap. And I think this is intuitive for a lot of us, you know, a lot of all of us who have been kind of living through this crazy time of, of COVID, that those who had better digital foundations were able to adapt better. I mean, think about Starbucks with, uh, you know, who did relatively well compared to competitors. They pushed, enhanced their mobile app, pushed out millions of new downloads, enabled new remote ordering capability so consumers could still shop, used APIs and microservices to, ex- to uh, expose and develop new capabilities with partners like Uber Eats to enable new in-home you know, delivery experiences. And, and that's, um, that shows you know, that the, the point about the digital leaders you know, widening the gap in what's important uh, going forward. So, uh, so to your point on digital leadership, I, it's those characteristics around the talent, the technology, the governance, the change, and we'll talk about experience maybe a little bit too, that are, are really important in this. Uh, in, increasingly, the, it di- the digital and technology really come together because you need the technology and the mastery of technology to create the leading digital experiences. We have a couple of questions from Twitter on some points relating to this. And let me, let me uh, couple them together. So Chris Peterson asks, how is the CIO role changing focused on the business and focused inward and uh, focused inward on the technology versus focusing outward on the customer. And Constance Woodson asks, how does one become and what are the qualifications for being a CIO today? CIO really needs to be, it can't be just focused on the, the the technology alone. It can't just be focused on internally. I had a very interesting session with one of our large clients earlier this week uh, with the CIO, this, what happened to be the CIO and the C-suite. And the whole theme of it was how do they, you know, thinking about it from a, a customer perspective and how do they create the right experiences for their, for their customers. And some of the learnings coming out of this session were about, you know, the importance of understanding the customer and the, the experiences that the customer needed. And then the data around that, because the data is, is you know, kind of is essential at driving those experiences. Uh, so uh, the so I think the CIO absolutely needs to be outward focusing from that perspective and understanding that and working with their peers in the business to to do so, uh, and then it then you'll then it'll tie back to you know some of the core competencies that IT has to deliver like the data and cloud and key capability that they need to make that happen, and um, and I think the uh, you know to the second question I think to develop these kind of capabilities I I I think what's really the the most important trait and it may not just be for a CIO, but for any leader in this environment, I think is being a great learner and being a bit empathetic in, in terms of understanding uh, understanding others. You need to be a learner to learn the business, learn about the consumer angle in your company or whatever it might be, 
learn about new technologies, and then be empathetic as, as well. Because empathy, I think, is really, if you're trying to create experiences, if you're trying to move an organization, create change, and these other things, some of, the, some of those types of skills around being, uh, you, know, being, um, you know, being able to lead in that, uh, you know, lead with empathy in this different way, I think becomes a, a really important trait. How does one become a CIO in today's world? That's from Constance Woodson. I think there's a lot of different paths to, to uh, get there. I, I, I do, I, I see, I, I, I know a lot of CIOs and talk to a lot of them. I have many friends who are CIOs and, and support and mentor some uh, along the way as well. And some come from a technology perspective and, and are extremely successful. And if you're coming from a technology perspective, I think it's about how do you round that out? How do you learn the business? How do you think about being a change agent and develop some of these other capabilities? Then there's others uh, who are extremely successful, you know, leading CIOs who don't have a strong technology background, who came in who came in from the business and came into IT from a different perspective. And for them, I think in the era we're in, mastering technology is really important. And we're doing, and I'm doing a lot of work with some some CIOs, kind of coaching and helping them, you know, on the uh, on the mastery of technology. So I think the answer to you know to, to the the question and how do you become a CIO, it depends on where you're starting from and making sure you round out those uh, those skill sets to develop the full, the full capabilities that are required to be successful. Paul, let's shift gears slightly. You mentioned the term customer experience earlier. And again, as I talk with CIOs, this seems to be a common refrain among the most innovative CIOs. And so, so share with us your, your thoughts and your, I know your tech vision report spoke about human experience. So talk about customer experience for us, if you would. I've been obsessed with this idea of experience for over 30 years or more than you know, 35 or 40 years now. Um, I read a book a, a lot of years ago by a guy named uh, Don Norman uh, called The Design of Everyday Things. And this is back, you know, back when the PC was new. It wasn't really talking about computer technology at the time. It was talking about how the design of things changed human behavior. And that book deeply affected, uh, deeply affected me. And I got into this idea of understanding the, the impact of things and technology on people. And, um, and I think we're in a time, in, and so I've been studying this for a long time, but we're at a time now where it's essential and, and experience, I think, is what makes the difference. Think about it in the context just of the past year and what's happened. Uh, you know, we're roughly a year after the, the big shocks of COVID and uh, the terrible you know, things that happened, not to mention all the, the other uh, Unbelievable events and some of the the, the the catastrophic events of the past year with systemic social injustice, racism, political chasms, all, all sorts of challenges we dealt with. But um, COVID, if if you think about it as as the specific uh, specific uh, thing, what it did is something that's never happened before in the history of human experience, human civilization. Billions of people change their behavior instantaneously. Ice ages didn't do that. Plagues didn't do that. The nineteen 19- the flu in the early uh, early 20th century in the 1920s didn't do that. Wars didn't do that in the same way. Instantaneously, people had to adapt to a new reality, and the new reality was fundamentally different. You know, we're yeah, we're you know, in my experience, I'm sure with many of you, I'm I'm now teaming or you know, using Teams or uh, WebEx or Zoom or Hangouts, whatever, to communicate with relatives. My kid, you know, kids are 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 going to school in that way. Uh, telehealth visits uh, for primary care are, are up 350 times. Uh, uh, online grocery shopping you know, from your home 
went from less than 40% of people in the US to over 80% in a matter of weeks. Dramatic changes in human experience. And I don't think we fully absorb these yet. And I think anybody who says they understand what, how this is gonna change our human experience permanently, it can't possibly know the answer because we don't know the answer yet and kind of our own expectations of how this is going to change us. So experience was important, but in the post-COVID era, it's essential. How is, how is health going to be part of every experience going forward? And I believe it will be, and we'll be thinking about that more profoundly. Things like that become really important. So anyway, um, that's uh, maybe a long lead into the, the, the question, uh, Mike, but the we've been... We've been kind of getting into this in a lot of different ways. And I think experience just needs to be part of your strategy. Experience is part of the, the architecture. When we talk about stack strategically, part of the, one of the layers you need to look at is your experience layer. You're, and it, it's about your worker experience. And it's about your consumer experience and how do you create the right experiences there. We're doing some very interesting work with clients on that front. And we saw this change happening. And again, it's driven by technology. In 2013, again, when we created Accenture Digital, we also launched uh, Accenture Interactive. And our bet was that technology, you know, it was a simple bet. We could have been wrong. It turned out to be right. But we made a bet that technology was going to disrupt the advertising industry and the technology was going to turn it from advertising to experience. And that experience was going to disrupt the whole notion of marketing. That was the bet of Accenture Interactive. It turned out to be right. We, we now have the largest digital agency business in the world. That's a technology-powered experience creation business. And it's, it's all about uh, you know, assembling these types of new experiences uh, for customers. What I find quite fascinating is you're a technologist, and yet the conversation that we're having is talking about empathy. It's talking about leadership. It's talking about how do you create experiences. And so how do you reconcile these, what historically were two very different sides, right? The empathy and leadership against hardcore technology. Just to be clear, I, I love ga- I have my micro drone here and my uh, VR headset here. So I'm never far from gadgets and technology. I love technology. I have my AI-powered Einstein that I can program uh, with, uh, with uh, Python behind me. So I'm never too far from technology. But, but what, the reason I'm, I'm at Accenture, I, I joined Accenture 35 years ago, and I thought I was going to be a research scientist at university and, and, uh, and teach. That was, what, that was what I thought the path was going to be. But I... I what got, what got me hooked and why I'm, I love what I do at Accenture is it's the opportunity to create the impact of technology, which is a lot more fun than just building technology. And if, if you want to have, if you're talking about impact uh, of, the, of technology, then you have to understand the human dimension of how it's going to be used. That's why you know, you know, Don, Don Norman, Ed Tufte, if, if you follow his work, which is amazing on, on experience and design, that's what's important if you, want to under, if you want to apply technology effectively. I think it's interesting. If you look at the, the founders of a lot of the top unicorns that have been public, the top successful companies, the Airbnbs and the companies, most of those weren't technologists. You know, Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn wasn't a technologist. You know? um, and uh, and that it's these other skills that are important to, to understand how people will use, te- you know, will, uh, will use technology. So that's, um, that's why I think it's, uh, it's a fascinating time. And we really are, um, you know, think about the future. I, I was doing an exercise earlier. I was thinking about something. I started counting up the number of chips and sensors that are within my site in my office here. And I stopped at 30 uh, different chips and sensors. And I, that's not by trying to have a lot of things. It's just by what's here and all the devices and, and things in my office. And that's true across everybody all around the world. And we're pushing out more and more devices. We have 5G technology, edge devices, 
sensors, et, et cetera, all over the world, which, is, it's, it, it, which can be used in one of two ways. It can be used to overwhelm people, frustrate people, and used for the wrong way. And some of the debates we're having around technology now are because of decisions that certain companies make that are kind of working against human desires. And, I, you know, and, 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 the, and, and we see that dynamic playing out. The other perspective you can take is how do you create, how do you use technology to create better experiences for people and create trust with them so that they trust the devices you have, trust the, uh, the way you're using technology. And those businesses that understand that We'll get it right. I mean, think about Amazon and Walmart now who are doing uh, in-home grocery delivery. They'll actually put groceries in your refrigerator uh, or put devices in, or put out packages inside your home. Think about the trust you need to engender to do that and how quickly you can break the trust and how every single interaction you have needs to build the trust to be able to deliver those services. Those that can create the experiences that build more trust will get more, you know, more data and more information to create increasing services that have the trust. Those that abuse the trust and think about click-throughs and think about optimizing, uh, optimizing views and clicks and those sorts of things, I think will destroy trust longer term. And it's th- that's the dynamic that's playing out. And that's a long way to come back to your question of why these other factors around leadership and technology interest me a lot more because we're going to be able to use technology a lot more effectively for the benefit of people and humanity if we understand a lot of these other issues around you know, leadership, empathy, understanding, experience, et cetera. We have a very interesting question from Twitter, and this is, quote, a nerd question for you. So the new technology that new technology investments that are being planned will affect the company's uh, company's technology architecture going forward. What do CIOs and CTOs need to do now to be thinking about that? The implication for their their architectures? Architecture matters. In technology, how you architect the systems. I think it's a we're in a, an era of the renaissance of the technology architects, um, and uh, and they're hard. Uh, good technology architects are hard to find. And um, how you assemble the technology, how you create the the microservices, how you you know how you uh, build the APIs out around your technology is is really essential. So I think it's it's a great question. I think that's critical for organizations. The way you're able to you know, to get your uh, your MVP, your minimum viable product out quickly to allow for extension and agility to, you know, to build on it going forward is going to depend on on architecting it, you know, properly. So I think that's one key point I'd make and I'd encourage, you know, I, I do encourage all the clients I talk to, all the companies I talk to, really focus on finding and, and nurturing the best architects. And it's a huge focus for us. We've got a something called our Master Technology Architect Program, which is a rigorous long-term development program to build those types of architectural skills and, and capabilities. So that's one answer to it. The other is, you know, I, I'm, I'm hugely sympathetic to technology leaders and organizations because it's hard uh, to, to create the new while you, may, while you keep the business running today. And the legacy is a real issue. You know, the legacy debt you know, issue is a real issue. And um, I think it's about you know, getting creative and how do you start to do feature extraction from your legacy systems and do it in a way that allows you to use them more, more effectively in the context of your new architectures. And how do you, you know, get creative around techniques like that? How do you move to the cloud, which we haven't talked about a whole lot now, but there's a massive, very compressed acceleration to cloud going on right now. How do you do that in an environment where you know you can't just pick up and move all your legacy overnight? Some things don't move to the cloud that well. And the, is, is there a business case to move it or not? So I think it's a combination of thinking about the right architecture and target state, and then getting you know, creative and, and um, uh, in exploring some techniques, we talk about digital you know, decoupling and a variety of things to use to try to 
enhance the modularity and ability to move some of the legacy and extend the life of it as you build on the, uh, the new platforms as well. Future of work. Where do you see our work environment going? You mentioned earlier that healthcare is going to be woven into the fabric of everything we do. So what's happening with work and what should we be thinking about regarding that? The reality is I don't think anybody knows. And I think if, if you say you know, if you, if you say it's going to be 15%, whatever, make up a percentage, I don't, I don't think you can, I don't think anybody knows that at this point. What we do, we do know some things. We know in our organization and for all the work we've done for our clients, everything we do can be done virtually. Everything we do can be done virtually. Um, and we've enhanced our ability to do it virtually over the past year. There wasn't a single project we couldn't do because the technology wouldn't allow us to do it. Yeah, there were some clients who couldn't, do pro- who couldn't afford to do, continue because of COVID, but there weren't things that we couldn't figure out how to do you know, uh, in, the, in the environment. So, um, so that tells us it can be done virtually. But the, the other thing I'd say is we're not going to do everything virtually. The future is not about all of us working from home. The future is, is one about giving people more choice and optimizing around bringing people together to enhance experience. I have a colleague of mine who I love the way he said it. He said, the criteria for getting people together physically shouldn't be on need. It should be based on fun. When you, when you, you can enhance your experience and have fun and enjoy you know, the human, you know, human relationship and build relationships and connectivity and trust and such, that's when you should get together. That's, that's, I think that's an interesting view. So we're going to have a hybrid. Um, we're going to have a hybrid approach going forward. We're going to have a, I think a lot of people back in office spaces. The office spaces will look differently, which is something we're looking at already. In terms of there'll be more around group work and how people work together. To go to an office to work in a cubicle, I'm not sure will make a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of sense going forward. Uh, but uh, we will. Uh, I think we'll be back to a world with a lot of um, uh, of human contact and human interaction and. And dialogue because for certain types of work it is an advantage to you know to being together physically and we need it to build cultures to build trust to build relationships etc. So that's the way I'd uh, that I'd answer that question. The other only other thing I'd say is I I think you need a like a real time pulse. So that's one thing the way we're looking at it. We're talking to our employees, getting input from our employees, getting input from our clients, uh, getting input from you know, new recruits and people that that are joining the company about what they want to do and how they want to work and how they, you know, they can work. And that'll, that continual pulse from the people is, is what we'll use to decide on the optimal approaches going forward. Another topic is responsible AI. And I know this is, again, a topic that's important to you. You've, you've, you wrote a book about this topic. So thoughts on responsible ethical AI today. It's not a solved problem is what I'd say, I guess. So AI, uh, I guess we haven't, we haven't gotten too deeply into some of the technologies, but what I believe is that uh, cloud and cloud and uh, and AI will be the two most transformative technologies of the next decade. They're not going away anytime soon. And in fact, we're at the early stages of both technologies and both are innovating rapidly and moving and moving on to, to different techniques and you have to, to, to follow them carefully. Um, in AI, specifically resp- responsible AI, um, the you know the issues we talk about we talked about a lot in the book I wrote human which is called human plus machine it's uh, it's accountability transparency fairness and honesty in the systems you build so uh, accountability so that you know at the end of the day uh, what human is accountable for key decisions it's not okay just to say you know the car turned left because the machine told you know told the story the car you know or created an accident. A human's accountable for a design decision or an operating decision that made something happen. We need to understand accountability properly. Fairness is critical because AI, 
AI isn't biased. AI is a very neutral technology, like every technology. Technology is neutral, but AI can be, can be trained on data sets that reflect bias and AI can be implemented in a biased way. There is simply no excuse for it. Uh, we know enough about AI. We know enough about testing. We, we have something called an AI fairness uh, toolkit there to, to implement AI in ways that, that are uh, fair, that are, that are not biased and that uh, don't have some of the, the consequences of uh, gender bias, racial bias, et cetera, that, um, that have been uh, problematic in the industry. Transparency means you should, you know, there's certain things that need to be explained. You should explain them. And honesty means you shouldn't use AI to cheat. And unfortunately, some companies have been caught using AI to cheat and uh, violate laws and that's, or regulations, and that's not appropriate either. It sounds pretty basic, but that's the foundation. And I, I think it's incumbent on the, if it, on the leaders and organizations that are applying AI to have policies in place to ensure you're using it consistent with these things I just mentioned. If not, you're going to run into problems and you're going to, have, you're going to be applying AI irresponsibly at some point and get caught up for it. So it's, uh, I think it's within our control as leaders to, to uh, get our arms around this and deal with it in the appropriate way. So issues around AI, fairness, transparent, algorithmic, transparency. Do you see these as uh, financial issues or cultural issues or what's the obstacle? Creating frameworks to ensure that you're applying it appropriately. So if you, you the data sets you're training on, do they reflect the, um, do they, do, do they reflect the, uh, all the qualities that you need to, you know, to develop, to, to train the algorithms you're, you're training. Do the testing, the way, you're, the way you're testing and the way you're evaluating for potential bias. There's, again, techniques we're using. These are, uh, this is possible to do. Techniques that we can test for the bias that might be in the systems, understand the dimensions of bias that may be evident in a system. Uh, are you doing that before you roll out a system in, into the wild? Uh, many organizations aren't. So it's those types of things that I think are, are important. I think, again, it's, it's uh, in the AI field, we're fortunate to have a lot of really talented, diverse leaders uh, in AI. And I think in our organizations, we need, uh, you know, if I get back to my diversity point, if you have a diverse team of people working on these problems, they're more likely to come out with the right answers and test and develop for the right things. And that's part of it as well. There are business model resist, there's business model resistance to transparency and fairness. I recently interviewed on this show, two members of the House of Lords in the UK who are grappling with this from a from a policy perspective. And so what should business leaders do to reconcile the the business model issues, the attractiveness of non-transparency with the social desire to have transparency? There's a couple of things. The first is, you know, as an example in the US, uh, we do not have appropriate um, privacy data privacy legislation at the federal level, and we need it. It's something we've advocated for. We've been active with the Business Roundtable and, and others in, in advocating for for change in that. That 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 starts to help because if you have if you have standardized, accepted rules around data privacy, that at least creates the foundation. We don't have that in the U.S. now, and I think that's a big a big gap. And it's kind of crazy in the digital world we live in to not have that in place. The um, and then from a business perspective. Sure, there's things that for competitive advantage you're going to want to like. You have trade secrets and things, and of course, you know you not you know, you, you can't publicize every part of a uh, of an algorithm and, and and such that you have. But 
the you have an obligation to make sure it operates effectively. Just like if you build a car, you have an obligation to make sure it operates effectively. Uh, and with a, with an algorithm, you know, unfortunately, it can have it can have more dangerous connotations than a car or some other physical equipment in, in some cases because of these types of bias issues. And I, again, I think it's about being what a business leader should do is do is make sure you have the principles established of what is what defines acceptable use for you and make sure you have policies in place in the organization that ensure you adhere to what you're setting. That's, that's what I think leaders need to do. And I think too many organizations, I would say the majority of organizations are flying blind. They have people out there applying the technology, developing the technology, applying AI, and um, you know, putting it out there and, and, and don't have as prescriptive and defined a set of guardrails as they need to, to ensure uh, you know, that's acceptable use of it. So developing a framework and then adhering to that framework in essence. Yeah. Yeah. We've got one we use in, in Accenture. We do this for clients. We help them set these things up. There's organizations like Partnership on AI that have been doing work in this in this area. So this, this, there's a lot of work in this area. I think too few organizations are tapping into it in developing rigorous you know, policies uh, in their own organizations. Paul, as we finish up, there are a lot of CIOs who watch CXO Talk and technology leaders. How can CIOs ensure the highest degree of relevance for themselves inside their organization and for IT going forward? I'd just like to start the answer to it by giving a shout out to all my CIO, CDO, CTO friends out there. And those of you who aren't friends that I don't know, I I have huge respect uh, for the technology leaders in every organization. I think it's, if not the hardest, one of the hardest jobs uh, that there is out there. But when you talk about everything we talked about, the need to evangelize and set direction and strategy from keeping the lights on to balancing the financial needs to you know, to looking at the talent and uh, developing the talent across the organization. So a big shout out to the amazing work that uh, that everybody in this industry in this industry does. I, I would say that the three things that I focus that I kind of come back to to focus on, I'd say you, you need to focus on the on the technology. You know, you know, and, and I'd say the main thing there is learning, you know, kind of learning about things. Uh, really think about the trust and how you cultivate the, the way that you're using technology in the organization cultivates the degree of trust within your consumers, customers, business partners, as well as your employees in the way you're, you know, you're applying technology. And then the uh, talent in, in uh, cultivating the right talent. I think the, it's, it's not just in, in IT or technology, but cultivating the right talent is really essential. And we're, we're, we're in an era where we're replatforming business right now. Uh, we, we've been applying technology in businesses for 70 years since the transistor was invented, not too far away from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and uh, But what, we're going through a major replatforming now with cloud and AI and everything that's happening. We're creating the new future. Uh, you might say we're creating tomorrow's legacy today right now, but it's not legacy. It's the new modern stuff. And uh, you need the new talent to do that. And I think creating the talent, uh, and it's the talent of your current organization, you know, transition to new skills, that's going to that's gonna help with that. So focusing on the talent, the reskilling, the rotating, as well as bringing in the new talent. Okay. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Paul Doherty, for spending time with us today. It's been great, Mike. Thanks. Time went by fast. It did. Everybody, we've been talking with Paul Doherty. He is the chief technology officer and the group chief executive of technology at Accenture. It's a huge company with 500,000 employees. It's hard to even imagine that scale. Thank you for watching, especially the folks who ask such great questions. Now, before you go, please, please subscribe to our newsletter. 
and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website to do that and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day and we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much.